Welcome to Source of Uncertainty, episode number five. I am Kyle Swisher. I am Robert Standifer. And yeah, thanks for coming back. And if it's your first time, uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, Bukla instruments. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people will listen to this episode after um, hanging out with a bunch of people last month at Velocity, or earlier this month at Velocity, and gotten lots of Facebook messages and Instagram messages and um, lots of excitement about the podcast, I think, because we had Eric on, and that was really awesome. Yeah, good um, good response from that. It was fun having him on. Um, but, uh, but hey, our guest this month is no slouch either. We've got, no, he's a cool guy. Yeah, we've got Nathan Moody on the show, um, which is cool that um, he was at Velocity, which he performed, and then also uh, talked about um, uh, recording and mixing uh, modular music specifically. Uh, it was a great talk that uh, or a great presentation that he gave. And, uh, and yeah, we've got him on the, the show today. Yeah, he's a really cool and interesting guy. Yeah, so the big part of this month, I think, we're all, was a velocity for us. It was a huge success, ton of fun. Yeah. It was just amazing to kind of <laughs> see all these people uh, that I've you know spoke to on the internet or whatever in real life um and uh yeah it was a, a great few days of uh hanging out with some cool people it was wasn't it kind of surreal i mean i'm, I'm standing there and todd barton is st- sitting there i got to meet him in person which was really really great mm-hmm. and and this time he knew who i was so that was kind of helpful <laughs> and then, then <laughs> um joshua holly who owns um dark place manufacturing you know manufactures euro rack modules and chatted with him and scott yeager of course we talked about bukla with him he was there and and just sort of um talking about bukla with all these different folks it just seemed so sudden and it was really cool and that those are just a few of the people there are so many others and all the vendors there you know and and bukla stuff didn't really stand out the way that it has in the past it's sort of become part of the of the critical mass was really neat and then i was a little starstruck by some of the performers that were at velocity also yeah it was an amazing show i mean just amazing blew me yeah. away how yeah it was just out of this world yeah banna hafar just killed it and uh i got to i talked to her for a few minutes before kind of leaving the whole thing and it was funny i had uh i i did a interview with uh, darwin gross on his podcast the art music technology podcast and she was like oh yeah i heard you on the on his show the other day and it was just like oh my gosh that's so crazy because you know the big part of uh of finding his show was like listening to uh, her episode on there so yeah yeah it was all very surreal and we we hung out with um ben divkid wilson quite a bit we had him and 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 tim Tim, held (laughs) yeah we're just missing ed ball from the rest of the uh, esoteric modulation. But, uh, yeah, we, we went to that tiki bar with them, um, you know, the week after Velocity, and I got to hang out with Ben, which was awesome. Just, you know, that was one of my the most fun nights I've had in so many years because Tim is out of his mind, you know, and Ben is a blast. <laughs> Tim, Tim knows what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Ben is... I've watched his videos, a lot of his videos over the years, and I've learned. And I, I watch him about Eurorack modules that I would never buy because I just love the depth that he goes into. Yeah. 
and in real in person uh, and i was talking to him about this he i realized you know he's a teacher he's an educator mm-hmm. and he happens to talk about and specialize in this to- this kind of topic but really at heart he's a very you know erudite educator and it's such a nice guy you know and so approachable and i thought yeah i mean this is why we kind of all listen to him and we take him seriously because he also knows everything about these modules it seems but yeah. it just kind of came across and it was so genuine you know it was it was really gr- a great pleasure to get to know him yeah it was a lot of fun and he had a great talk um at velocity as well kind of yeah. bro- broke down a, a system that he was using um and just you know going into like cool music theory stuff like just incorporating like bebop chord changes or something yeah. or something yeah. um <laughs> it's and, so smooth how he does that too you know like oh we'll just go into this g major chord and we'll drop the triad and use a tritone paradox yeah that's yeah well all that goes over my head <laughs> like, he didn't Whoa. really say that <laughs> oh I, I do want to say that there was one pretty crazy experience for me at velocity i was having some pizza with my friend jeff and these these other guys were um, from Velo- they were at Velocity were at the pizza place, and they recognized my voice from the podcast. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you know, I'm a cele- celebrity now. You've made it. <laughs> I need to get a T-shirt made with my own visage and <laughs> source of uncertainty at the top. That's right. <laughs> we're gonna have those, yeah, source of uncertainty T-shirts someday. But, you know, you never when you listen to NPR with Corva Coleman or, you know, Linda Wertheimer or whatever, you don't know, you have no idea what any of them look like. Yeah. You know? but, they, but if you're out and about at the Met in New York city and, you know, Corey Flintoff from NPR is chatting with somebody about Vincent van Gogh, then you get to say, <laughs> wow, that's Corey Flintoff. I recognize him from NPR. <laughs> that's how it was for me. That was my, that was my moment, which clearly, like, by the even way, with a, even with a piece of pizza in your mouth. Yeah. Even with a, <laughs> an overpriced old reheated piece of pizza that, that was actually not that bad. Um, <laughs> it was very, very surreal, but you know, that kind of encapsulates the entire day for me. It was, there was just so much going on there and it was um, just back to back information and all of it was so great and all the people and just, for the being the very first one, it was out of this world. So I can only imagine what what the next one will be like. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed that they they do it again. Um, but yeah, uh, Bukla did show up there uh, kind of last minute. But yeah, they had the two eight C. So um, I only I don't think I actually nah maybe I did put my fingers on it just to switch in the uh, the noise function. But I yeah, unfortunately, didn't get to spend that much time with it. Did you? I, Get did a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um I talked to Charles C. Holzer from Buchla, who was at there at the um you know demo- demoing the 208C and asked him some questions about um about it, you know, and he was helping somebody else at this around the same time. Mm-hmm. So I listened in on that. And it it's it's really nice. I mean, it's a 208, you know, with some extra stuff and green sliders and green knobs. So very familiar, but it was just different enough that it it was it, it felt like something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And listening to the um, the oscillators, it sounded excellent, and the reverb sounded excellent. I didn't get to play with any of the digital effects because, um, first of all, I didn't know how, and it was also very loud in the show floor. Yeah, but 
the feel and the and the look of it in the boat, you know, with the wooden end cheeks is very mm-hmm. solid. It just looked it looked great. It presented really well too. And um I'm not trying to sell it or anything, but <laughs> it was sort of it just felt very high quality. It looked very high quality and it sounded great. And I, I could tell that people were very enthusiastic about it also. Yeah, there's never not a point where whenever I'd poke my head into the kind of showroom area that somebody was jamming on it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was occupied most of the time. And Charles is like this mad scientist type, you know, he's wearing a speed suit, like Dr. Venture <laughs> and the Venture Brothers. And so cool. Yeah. He, like, he looks like this mad scientist. And and the other people some of the other people demoing equipment, you know, or or the they're very knowledgeable about their gear. And, you know, when I was looking at a Roland, the Roland guys were awesome and telling me all about the filters and stuff. And Charles is you know, totally different. And we were geeking out about PCBs and, you know, the width of banana cables and, <laughs> and stuff like that. It was really funny. So you might've seen that Keen Association has released their long awaited Jardin d'Orson model 287E or Ooh. for the non-French speakers, Jardins de Sans. I was gonna say you, yeah. man. Sorry, <laughs> you gave me the butterflies with that pronunciation. So Jardin de Sol means Garden of Sound. Jardin is garden. The Sol means of sound, and it is. Well, I can't really try to explain what it is because I don't fully understand it yet. But I did read the manual, and it, it's essentially a tool or a module intended for music concrete and. Music um, acoustomatique, which is, you know, the music music concrete is using different sounds put uh, pieced together to make music, and acoustomatique just means using acoustic sounds. I shouldn't say just, but that's what it is. And it has a microphone built into it, so you can capture ambient sounds, like maybe if you're using like a piece of wood striking on a. You remember when we were in elementary school? You get this that piece of wood and you kind of rake it against another piece of wood and oh it makes yeah that, yeah that sound. So you could use that to um, record that sound into the module and then play it back with pitch change and other types of modulation for that that kind of found sound or that um, external sound, introducing that into your bukla. So don't really want to call it a sampler. It's more of a, I think, didn't he just kind of describe it as like a tape machine? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a virtual tape machine. That's right. Like my Porta Studio. Yeah, or three, and there's three of them. Yeah, right? kind of three duplications of, and the the module, the look of it is really interesting because you know the the garden of sound. It looks like three little flowers. You know the way that he mm-hmm. has yellow CV inputs mm-hmm. and green um, going green around knobs, the windows. Yeah, with green knobs, mm-hmm. it looks like a little flower garden. Uh-uh. So I'm trying to get one. There are only twenty of them, and um, I'll try to get one so that we can talk about it and maybe next time I'll speak with a bit more authority but it's a really really cool module and and I like the fact that I have no idea how it works as a good thing because uh, that you know like I always say these things reward exploration and I think this is one that I, that would be really fun to dive into yeah and he's kind of pulling the the dambuka route by not telling you what to do with it by any yeah. means and yeah. just here's the tool and you figure it out <laughs> Um, I love him. He writes these really scientific manuals. You know, it's like, it's the, I'm going to major in physics and you get like a fourth year physics, physics textbook. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, um, 
what do they call it? The wormhole. Um, oh yeah. Little the back. What is it? What is he calling it? That module that'll go on the back of the case or whatever that you can. The wormhole something. Um, that plugs into the bus board. I think that is a way. It sounds like you could then like theoretically like hook up your your iPhone to that and and pull sounds from from there and yeah. and put it into the mod into the mod yeah and he they have a whole ecosystem under development um they have a module called the 290e that uh, they're working on that i believe is sort of the command center for this um i've seen some pictures of it on muff wiggler or is that, that the or is that the um the multi-effects Oh, you're right. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, the 290E is the multi-effects, and the then there's another successor box. to like the 289. Right, and it has a display so that you know which algorithms you're loading. Yeah. Um, then there's another module that I saw a picture of. That's it's actually not a module. It's a it's a box with a big screen and a bunch of knobs, which <laughs> sounds like a module, but it's a it's a self-contained unit, and it's sort of the brains. And I I I don't remember the number of that one, but yeah, it might not it, even it have integrates one. into the smart cab and yeah. Oh, yeah, Lots of cool right. stuff from them. I really like what the, I'm their biggest fan. Yeah, they're doing pretty amazing work over there. We have a new website for the podcast at sourceofuncertainty.audio, and we've been working pretty hard on it. It's pretty cool. We have um, you definitely all the have of, been uh, working hard on it. That's true. I don't shouldn't get, have given don't give you me a, any. Yeah, I should not have given you a, a lick of credit. <laughs> <laughs> I have been Robert working really has. hard on, it. <laughs> and it has um, our past episodes and some information about me and Kyle and a way to get in contact with us and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that um, it'll be a really great way for people to get more information about the show and what we have coming up and some of the live events, you know, and getting plugged in at least here in the Seattle scene. Um, and there'll be a way for you to, if you're if you want to submit your music to be on the music spotlight when we do those and just getting in contact with us to talk about all the different things for the show. So check it out at sourceofuncertainty.audio. And I'd also like to mention, oh, well, I'd also like to first off thank all the Patreon supporters that we've had. We've picked up a few more over the last couple of months. So thank you for supporting the show. It, it helps out a lot. And uh, what um, what a big thing on there is that we do is put the, uh, we video or record the um, featured module sections. And we're now going to start releasing um the video out to the public um, after two months that it's been just for the uh, Patreon supporters. So uh, now you can go back and find the um, episode two's uh, Marf video on there. If you just type in source of uncertainty, right, Robert? In the yep. YouTube. Or go to the website at source of uncertainty. Web- there you go. Another the reason. Videos are there. Yep. That's why you made that website. Yeah. It's funny, you know, like, like I'm plugging it. I'm not going to make any money off of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like i i paid a lot of money to make it it's all labor of love folks <laughs> yeah it was it was pretty fun too it's a beautiful beautiful site just the best template i've ever bought on wordpress.com <laughs> yeah please email us and, and and you know tell tell robert how much you appreciate it <laughs> and if you recognize my voice when i'm out and about please tell me <laughs> i need that tell them that you like the website yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I guess moving on uh, to the feature or what? We're, yeah, for the featured module section that we're going to talk about today, we are um, we're going to do two modules. We're going to do the killer combo, 
the 281 and the 292. That's the quad function generator and the quad low pass gate. Two modules that you see side by side in nearly every Buchla system that you'll see. So, um, yeah, it was fun getting back to basics. Yeah. Kind of straight away on a, a few things um, in the last couple shows. And, uh, but yeah, good to bring it back. That was That was really fun because there were a lot of moments where we were like doing something and we didn't really know how it was supposed to work. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Cause you kind of gloss over, you know, it's such a, these are kind of standard modules mm-hmm. quote unquote, and um, it's, it's easy just to be like, okay, the, those are just kind of like a means to an end, but I'm really going to, you know, dig into this oscillator or something. And yeah, the envelope will low pass gate will take care of themselves, but it was kind of nice to really like, no, let's, stretch out all these functions and um yeah, dig in deeper so um yeah i guess without further ado let's should we get into it yeah let's let's uh let's dive in it's a ton of fun all right robert we are uh bringing it back to basics this has been a long time coming i think yeah um, we're going to, I don't know, some would say this would be kind of a big core of what a Buchla setup is. Like you don't see these two modules not in a setup. They're kind of standards. Yeah. They, in the four space system, there's always an oscillator, the 266E and the 281E and the 292E or the little half module version of it. Yeah. H's, those are pretty cool. Um, it's essential. I mean, I don't know how one could have a Buchla system without a 281E in it or the 292E or the or the knockoffs. So yeah, we're talking about the quad dynamics gen, uh, manager and the quad function generator. So to start out with the quad dynamics manager, we're going to... So there's three modes to it. There's a uh, just a VCA, which they're calling a gate, a uh, low pass mode which rolls off the highs and the lower and as you go up um, it kind of gets more squelchier in a way and then there's a combo mode which kind of goes in between them so here is just a sweep of the VCA so just very clean yeah it's opening and closing the VCA gain knob no character. And then you, if we go to the low pass mode. I love that sound. That's like quintessential Buchla. And, uh, and then you can go to the combo mode. So it's mixing both. And that combo mode will sound the same as the low pass mode because essentially it's putting a VCA in front of the low pass gate. So as you sweep the gain up, you know, it sounds the same. But when we start throwing um, envelopes into it, then we'll open and close that, that low pass gate and then it'll sound a lot different. It's pretty cool. Yeah, there's, um, there's more of a ring out. And I think it has to do with the, um, the Vactrals uh, that are in this module when in combo mode, there's kind of a, after you hit it, there's kind of a a ring out after that initial pluck, which we'll get into. 
So, uh, so yeah, there's four of these, A, B, C, and D. It's regular inputs and outputs. There's control voltage in for each of these. The addition in the 200E series was the uh, were velocity inputs for each one of the channels, and I know that's a that's new. It wasn't on the uh, previous uh, 200 series um, gate. Uh, essentially, the old 200 series gate was kind of the same thing except for the the velocities. They're like they're sort of like voltage control over the gain. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about patching an envelope into the A input and then you, you turn the knob and you'll set that knob to a certain, you know, you'll open the gain up manually to a, a max, you know, or like, basically like a base. So if you set it halfway, then the VCA is halfway open. And when the black CV input takes an envelope, it would open the VCA all the way to 10 and then go back down to five where you have it open. Mm-hmm. With the velocity input, you have voltage control over the gain. So that means as you, for example, go from zero to 10 with an envelope in the black input, you can send a control voltage to velocity and control that max amplitude mm-hmm. or set the gain really low. So you could have it to where the um, it will, instead of going all the way open, you kind of have it halfway open, like through the velocity. So that makes for some really interesting um, modulation with volume, because as you, for example, if you had two outputs from the um, the two sixty one E, and you had them into two inputs on the two ninety two E, you could use amp- that volume modulation to bring one or the other one in and out, even though they're on you know different envelopes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i think we can probably demonstrate that a little bit later right yeah we'll get into that um when we were playing around with it before i kind of looked at it as um being able to double gate something so instead of taking like the output of a channel a into um the input of channel b and um, having two different types of control voltage uh to both of those channels uh, maybe like an, a slow evolving envelope while a pulsing one is underneath it. You can do that all within the velocity and uh, and the regular CVN. I, I use the velocities inputs a lot when I perform live because um, I use the 223E and kind of and the, um, the R and the S, kind of the joystick pads mm-hmm. on the 223 to bring things in and out like a mixer. That way I don't have to mess with the 227E's knobs. Yeah, it's kind of at your fingertips instead of... So I use it like a VCA kind of. Yeah. Yeah, so then to switch over to the quad function generator, it's four attack decay envelopes. They have three different input types, so they can be self um, uh, self self-cycling. And then there's a uh, input trigger for just a, um, uh, I guess it's not, what's the, uh, just um, a transient input? Is that what they call that? Where it just is like the one, it'll just go through. Yeah, self-cycling, transient is, self-cycling is a little, look, looks like a bunch of little triangles. Mm-hmm. Transient is the, what, um, I think Todd Barton called it a teepee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third one is sustain which looks like um, part of a trapezoid. And that's, that input is really commonly used in, in keep, with keyboards or other touch controllers. Yeah, so if you're holding down 
uh, a key on a, a touch controller, it'll the note will stay there. Where if you have it in transient mode, it'll just go through the cycle of the attack decay and stop until it gets another um, another pulse. I think that's pretty much how most envelope generators work. I'm looking at my big five U system. None of my EGs are self cycling. They mm-hmm. all take a control input. So that transient mode in the 281E would work just like those. Yeah. Those EGs. Yeah. So where I think the self cycling thing is, um, yeah, pretty specific to to Buchla compared to to Moog. There are CV inputs for the attack and decay knobs. The range for the attack and decay knobs are would we say one thousandth? A thousandth okay. of a second to ten seconds. Yeah. Which. Um, 10 seconds, it's like it's not that long. So you could take it basically, it's 20 seconds if you have them both all the way up to, to complete the function. But um, I did an experiment where I put 10 volts into the attack and cranked that all the way up. And um, I got a 40, it was like either 43 or 47 minute attack. Did you time it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was a fun experiment. And, uh, <laughs> Um, so yeah, so with a little bit more voltage, they can expand, uh, quite a bit more. I like to use the 266E, um, the fluctuating voltages into attack and decay. Yeah. That's really fun. I think, I think for my next live performance, you know, they're about 20 minutes. I might just have one envelope. (laughs) Yeah. And just like finish the whole piece in one, like (laughs) just hit start and put my hands up. Right. And just let the whole. The whole thing run on its own. Um, so obviously there's a CV out and there's also a pulse out. Um, and then, so yeah, there's four of these and they're at the bottom of the module. There's a uh, quadrature mode, which um, links the uh, A and B uh, function generators and then the C and D function generators. Um, so they kind of work together. And after um, the f- first function finishes the second one starts and then we have the ors section uh, which is two knobs and two uh, cv outputs and basically it's um, mixing between function a and function b on the first uh, output and then function c and function d on the second i think all the way to the left would be on the top one would just be section A, and then you can bleed in more of sec or of uh, uh, section B's CV. And you have those on your two ninety two C, right? Yeah. So all of it's yeah, and this is basically the same except for um, quadrature our buttons on the E version yeah, instead of switches instead of switches. Yeah. So um, so yeah, not a ton of difference between the old two hundred series and the two hundred E. Well, you know the ORs aren't under. E, they're not under preset management. They have white knobs. So I wonder, and maybe mm. someone who's listening can, can email and let us know, but I wonder if the circuit for the ORs is the same kind of circuit that was in the original 292. Mm. Like maybe there's a reason that it's not under preset management. That would be interesting to find out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to show, basically, so you have a, um, what's also cool is when these modules are side-by-side, uh, the little shorting bars can connect from the um, basically the quad function generators um, a output into the quad dynamics managers a CV input and on down the line. So um, so yeah, you don't have as much of a cable kind of mess, and you can 
um, a lot of people will, will leave those um, plugged in, but it is good to kind of break that and maybe have envelopes go into other control voltage processors and, and then back into the uh, Dynamics Manager. Yeah, in the last episode, I think I mentioned that I have the 281E on the left and the 254E quad control voltage processor in the middle and then the 292E on the right because I got that idea from Doug. But for today, Kyle messaged me on his way over here and said, put those together. <laughs> like, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> so I pulled them out and, and connect them. But you know, the, the default, I think, is to have them next to each other. And the shorting bars, the connections are set up by design for them to be shorted together and with the shorting bars, connected with the shorting bars. And when you look at older systems, pictures of older systems, they're connected that way too. So of course there's nothing wrong, nothing bad or anything about having them right next to each other. I bet 99% of people do. And it is certainly very convenient to leave them connected because then you always have an envelope opening a VCA. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but what I've started doing so in this configuration, I'll probably leave it this way for a while, is have the um, move the 254E so that's down next to my other control voltage processor. And that way I can kind of have a, um, for lack of a better term, matrix of CV processing out of the 281E and then back into itself or into the 292. Mm -hmm. But the only reason really to go into that is that the 281E is way more than an envelope generator. It's not, I mean, I wouldn't even call it an envelope generator. It just happens to make envelopes in addition to a lot of other things. But it's kind of the, the foundation of control voltage source in a Buchla system. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And um, leaving it connected to the 292E, folks might forget that, um, but it, it does so much. I mean, I've seen systems that have as many as three 281Es in them. Yeah, it almost is like you can never have enough. <laughs> yeah, kind of enough function generators in yeah. Lucla. Yeah. Um, all right, so to show off the cycling um, input on the uh, 281E, I'll... Uh... So I have the attack all the way down um, and the decay up to about 0.10 on this one. And if you turn the decay down, it's obviously just going to ramp up to get into kind of... And the 292 is in combo mode. So yeah, I'll, I'll then kind of go... Um, so I'm, it's in combo mode now. I'll go to... There's low pass. There's gate. Yeah, which bypasses the LPG entirely. Yeah, so they all have their different... And now we're back at combo. So they definitely have three pretty distinct sounds. Yeah. Um, that all have their uses. So here you're getting like an LFO, nice long sine wave LFO. Oh, that's in gate modes or combo mode. Here's the low pass one.
All right, so that's the self-cycling. Let's patch the 223E pulse output. So we set it to transient. That'll finish up. So now we're setting the mode for, or the, um, the pulse input type to transient, the little TP, and tax down to about 0 0.001, and it decays right about in the middle. So when now when I strike a key or strike a touchpad on the 223, so that's in combo mode. So when I hold down on the key, it's not in sustain mode, so it just however long the the um, attack and decay are set to, the pulse is just gonna fire those. Yeah, so if I ramp that up a bit. And then if we switch it over to sustain, so Robert's holding it. Yeah, I can even put it all the way down. So it's now attack and decay all the way down, so it's more like an on-off. So if we turn the, the attack up on that, on the sustain, this is kind of neat. I'll change it to low pass. That cool. Yeah, so that's just your kind of basics, but um, but yeah, now we'll get into maybe some other cool things uh, on figuring out how to to patch this thing up. Okay, so right now we're going to show uh, double gating um, that you kind of previously mentioned. Uh, so what we have going on is a, a fairly slow attack and decay envelope going into section A of the 292. And then we have um, a fast pulse um, coming out of the section B of the 281. And that's going into uh, section B of the 292. But what we have going on here is, uh, so the oscillator is going into A, but output of A is going uh, into the input of B. So that's where we're getting the two different control voltages, um, but only one, si uh, affecting the signal, but it's only one signal. So you can hear that here. So we've kind of had that slow, uh, rise and fall, but it's being pulsed very quickly by the uh, and both uh, channels are in combo mode. Um, what is kind of neat is you can um, change up the different uh, gate modes. So if we put maybe the the slow rise and fall in low pass, cool. Um, and maybe we we do a this is just a gate. Um, the VCA on section B with the low pass mode going on the first one. So that's where we maybe go to both low pass. Oh, I think that, that bubbly sound is really neat. Yeah. Or we, maybe we go. Oh, the yeah, gate on A and low pass gate on B. Yeah. yeah VCA on A. Yeah. That's an yeah. interesting thing about this. The, the label says gate, which technically it is a gate. I think of it as a, like a VCA sort of, but low pass gate and gate are two different things. <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, so it's a little confusing at first, but when, when you know it, it works just like a VCA. But with this, we can also um, 
some another way that we could kind of go about doing this all in one channel. We're going to use the velocity mm -hmm. input. Yeah. Um, so you're you're hearing a that um, envelope that's kind of opening and closing it coming out of a. So I'm going to patch that rapid cycle out of that rapid envelope out of B into the velocity input on A in combo mode. Now one of the, it sounds very, very similar, but one main difference is that now we only have one mode for the channel because we're only using A. So if I cycle through those, here's it's combo. There's low pass. And there's gate. So unlike the other method, there's there's no way to you know mix them together. Yeah, you don't have you that, only have that one that channel. extra variation. But but yeah, getting the same kind of idea across. But then you're using the only one channel, which is kind of nice if you have many different signals going on. Yeah, um, it's kind of a cool thing about the velocity input. So there's some really neat things you could do with that. You know, especially if you were to have like a sequencer that's doing the pulse input on on B. Mm -hmm. And then you could have, I, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but it seems like you would be able to do a hocketing type thing where you're sending the same sequence to two different um, oscillators mm -hmm. and switch between them with that velocity. Yeah, input. just kind of have different accents. Yeah, you see, and so you're only opening the velocity, using velocity to open up a channel every other note. Mm -hmm. So it goes one, three, five, seven on A, and then two, four, six, eight on B, mm -hmm. and get that hocketing approach. Something worth trying out sometime. That just popped in my head. Yeah. something really fun yeah so we've got uh we've got all four channels of both the quad function generator and the quad dynamics manager uh in play here and we're doing cascading envelopes i guess or pulsed yeah pulses so um so we've got a trigger going into the input of uh of uh, function generator a and once that goes through its cycle it's going to, um, the output pulse is going to trigger the uh, function generator B, and that's going to run through the same thing, and then into C and into D. So it's all going to kind of cascade down the line. It's kind of um, functions sort of like pulse divider in a way. Using the attack and decay knobs for each subsequent section, you can get a... Um, you can set the timing of the pulse output because the pulse will fire at the end of the envelope. Yeah, so we'll get into maybe... Um, so this is just triggered by the 223, a pulse from there, but we're going to go into self-cycling, which will also kind of mess with that as well. Yeah, you ready to hear it? Yeah. See if people kind of recognize what we were doing. Too bad we don't have a an E channel to that last <laughs> note. <laughs> so... So yeah, it's kind of going down the line for all four oscillators. So if we then put in... Um... <laughs> so funny. Into self-cycling mode. Yeah. 
thing kind of start to play with um, the attack and decay of everything and you get some the top section is set to self-cycling all the other um, sections of the 281e are firing based on that pulse from the top one so if you had a sequencer driving this instead of self-cycling then you could have different pitches for the four different you know the different oscillators make for some really fascinating rhythms Mm -hmm. with that you know the the, with a really basic sequence i'm going to switch some different gate modes Switching a couple to the uh, combo and one in gate mode. All to combo. Too much fun. <laughs> nice ping in there that I like a lot. This, let's hear it. Thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, just such a versatile module, you know. Kyle was, I was just sitting here listening while Kyle was turning knobs and things, and just on the 281E. And if you watch the video as a Patreon subscriber, you can see that there's, there's a really cool visual cause and effect relationship as the blue LEDs light up on the, on the envelope outs, and, um, which really helps to understand what this is doing. But it's a very simple patch, mm-hmm. very simple, but it has a lot of sonic characteristics that uh, I think are really interesting. Okay, so now we're going to show off um, a little bit on the uh, attack and decay inputs and self-patching the quad function generator to itself. So we've got uh, section A that's self-cycling at a pretty short pulse. And then we um, we have the output pulse of that going into uh, the section B of the quad function generator. And that's CV is going back into the attack of the section A <laughs> function generator. <laughs> Got all if that? that makes sense. Yeah. Go check out the video. Um, so if we bring that up, 
pretty straightforward rhythm and both the attack and decay on section B are, are all the way down. But if I start bringing up the decay, it'll start to affect the attack of... Yeah, the CV out of B into the attack of A. So section B is modulating the attack of A. So you get kind of that that sort of out of phase. Yeah. So you kind of get these funky little rhythms. Yeah. They're almost they almost feel unpredictable a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean as I Yeah, that's cool. So I brought up the attack on section B up a little bit. Possibilities there. Let's have a look at quadrature mode. Um, let me explain the patch setup and then uh, Kyle will walk us through it. Really basic. We have section A shorted to, uh, of the 281 East, shorted to um, section A of, or input A of the 292E. And we have one audio source coming out of the 25080, uh, the dual programmable oscillator, into the A section of the 292E. And that's it. We just have a really short attack, kind of a decent decay. Yes. So show us what you did, Kyle. So, um, so I'm going to put it in self-cycling mode. So we don't have this in quadrature mode yet. Sounds like the opening to the show. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> do, 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 do. Um, so, yeah, you can hear just this straight rhythm pulse. Like if we were going to, um, if we we're going to shorten the decay on this one, obviously it gets much faster. If we're going longer, it's going to go longer. But if you put it in quadrature mode, so I'm pressing the quadrature button now, um, the attack and decay knobs of section B come into play. So essentially, and we have to thank Todd for this, the, um, the attack now on section B becomes uh, kind of like a sustain. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of an ASDR. Yeah, so it's like attack from section A is attack, Sustain is the attack from section B. Then we go to okay. decay uh, back on section A and uh, release. And the release is the, it sets the time between the envelopes. So I think that's probably best yeah, demonstrated so if audibly. I So basically on section B, both knobs are all the way down. But if I start to turn up the decay on section B, you can see here it's the same interval like the attack um the, the pulse is still the same but it's taking more time to re-trigger because there's it's going through this release period on section b so if i pump that way up 
Um, and then if we bring in the attack on section B. That's a, a nice sustain. So that pulse is just being sustained more. So I can really. Yeah, so kind yeah. of kind of, you know, another way. Kind of like an ADSR, but Yeah, kind of. Or an ASDR. And the in the um the five view format, Moon Modular makes an ASDR. So the attack sustain decay release. And that is kind of familiar to uh, compared to what we're doing here. And you could patch a audio to section B and have that second part of the quadrature envelope do some interesting things with that. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty neat. Pretty cool. Now we're at what might be my favorite part of this episode, the ORS mode on the 281E. This was such a cool effect when, when we figured out how to make this work. Yeah, don't sleep on the ORS. Um, I do find myself sleeping on it a lot, but every time I, I use it, I'm like, oh man, this is so useful. Um, so yeah, what ORS basically does is um, it combines section A and B or c and d and there's an output and you basically all the way to the left you're going to hear um whatever a is um the cv out from a and as you turn it to the right it starts blending in uh the cv from section b so right here what we're going to do is um put this into the 227 e to kind of get some stereo panning effects So section A of the 281 is just this long attack and decay. It's in a, um, a 10 second on each on the attack and the decay. So you can just slowly hear it pan from left to right. And as we move up the OR section, um, we're going to hear section B get added in. And that's more of a pulsing, uh, faster function that's going on start to hear that come in and that's about halfway up so it's just gra that will kind of peek through <laughs> gradually so we'll leave it here for a second and you can hear it pulse there so then we want that. more so we're going to crank that up um, so this is about three quarters of the way up So there's a longer sustain of those creeping through. Yeah. Then we're going to go all the way up. That's a really neat effect. So the 227E has quad output. So if we, and we don't need to do it right now, but theoretically, how could we use the ORs with the 227E's four channels to do... I guess we could have the front and the back switch between each other. 
you know, A, A and B switch with C and D with uh, forward and back panning on, with the oars, just like we're doing from left to right. So we could do left to right and front to back and quad to move the sound all over the room. Yeah, for sure. Under voltage control. Um, even if, well, we, yeah, and that kind of, if we did the cascading um, uh, points too, that might help. Yeah. We kind of had each one um, plugged into one another. But um, yeah, I use this uh, this type of effect um, in my patch for velocity just to, instead of just a slow kind of left to right pan, adding in that, um, that kind of B section that's got a little pulsing um, and they're kind of out of phase with each other. So they, um, you know, it pops in and out at random times. You know, we should make sure we ask Nathan Moody about how we could mix this effectively yeah, without getting a crazy uh, phase cancellation. Uh, yeah. All right, we're here with musician, sound designer, mastering engineer, animator, and artist, Nathan Moody. Nathan, welcome to Source of Uncertainty. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so in the past uh, two and a half years, I believe you've released about 10 albums, and I was wondering kind of what sparked that creative blast. I've been making music, electronic music specifically, for about 20 plus years, and um, I, I think what happened was when I first started making music, I was doing it to fit into a scene and I was doing it to really kind of belong socially. Mm-hmm. And um, I wound up having this kind of crisis of confidence, thinking I was a better sound designer than composer, thinking those two things were completely different and separate. And I stopped making music for a very long time. And I literally woke up one morning and I was like, you know, I, for me as an artist, I don't think there's a difference between arranging sound in time and space and what. I've always thought of as traditional music composition. And once I gave myself that permission to make art without um, worrying and hand-wringing about who am I trying to be, I all of a sudden found I had a whole lot to say musically. And um, the floodgates kind of opened, and it's I've just never been more uh, musically or, frankly, creatively prolific than in the last four to five years. Yeah. And that kind of also, um, and you kind of shifted your, your actual, your work life around that time too, right? That was a little more recent. Um, okay. I, I went uh, full time as an audio professional about two years ago, um, after a 20, 30 year long career in kind of more visually oriented creativity. I've been an illustrator. I've been a motion graphics designer, visual effects person, interaction designer, creative director. Um, And I kind of looked back professionally across all of those things. And you wouldn't think that audio would be a big part of it. But I've always liked working in small studios, small agencies. And so anytime there was any sort of audio task, whether it was sound design or composition or dialogue editing, it would always fall to me. And I realized over the last 20 or 30 years, that's actually been the only consistent thing that I've done across all of these different jobs and all these different projects. And um, I started collaborating with some other musicians and um, having taken classes decades and decades ago in 
proper studio mixing on a console with multi-track tape, I kind of came to realize that all of a sudden, wow, I'm actually a little bit more of a technical um, musician than a lot of the people that I know. And so that mm. kind of led me to starting to not just collaborate musically, but people asking me to master their albums, help them with mixing. And that's kind of become my full-time job in the last couple of years. Well, I was curious, um, why electronic music? Was it the hardware or the you liked that style of music a lot? Or what kind of led you specifically into, you know, the, the kind of the genre that you're working in and the hardware that you selected? Two, the, the sh there's two answers, and the short answers were um, uh, making music on my own and coming in through the, the scuzzy back door to electronic music. Um, <laughs> I've always been a solo artist, and so I, my first instrument that I got very serious about was a saxophone, and then I found the saxophone not very immediate. You know, you have this idea you want to express, and then you got to sit and wet the reed in your mouth for 10 minutes before you can actually start playing <laughs> Um, and it just wasn't very immediate. So I switched to guitar and because I was a solo artist, um, and always have kind of done music on my own until very recently, um, I wound up getting a Casio RZ1 drum machine for two reasons. Number, well, three, number one, screamingly cheap back in the day. Number two, um, it provided me a rhythm against which I could perform. That was a lot more fun than just a metronome. And number three, it was a sampling drum machine with, I think, a tenth of a second of sampling on four pads each. And um, and the, one of the reasons why I decided to do that instead of um, getting you know some other way to accompany myself was that I got into electronic music n not through synth pop or new wave like a lot of people my age did, but because I was a huge fan of the band Big Black. You know, mm. Steve Albini's mm -hmm. first band. Um, super nihilistic. Um, sang a lot about growing up bored in rural America, which resonated with me in terms of how I grew up. And they always had a drummer on all their albums credited as Roland, uh, <laughs> because, of course, they always used drum machines. And so that got me into Godflesh. Same thing. Dark, sludgy metal with drum machines. That got me into Skinny Puppy. That got me into Frontline Assembly, Front 242, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So that's kind of how I came to the um, to the world of electronic music. Sort of the, the wax tracks path of sorts. Very much so. Um, and I think you, you probably honestly can still hear that in a lot of my work. Um, I don't tend to go for clean, pristine patches and um, things that are... Um, kind of pretty wallpaper. Um, I try to do things that are a little bit more challenging to the ear and to the mind to make people kind of have more of a, more of a way to directly engage with, with my work than just having it on in the background. Mm -hmm. And so then tell, to bring it back to the, uh, the Buchla of it all, um, how did that sneak its way into your, um, yeah, into your, your musical endeavors? Like a lot of musicians these days, you know, you, you kind of can't have a studio without having at least a little bit of Eurorack in it. Um, so after a while, I wound up having a studio with a lot of Eurorack in it. <laughs> um, and I, having, you know, uh, having had such a background in electronic music in terms of being a listener, um, 
I found that the more kind of West Coast, less um, subtractive approach to sound design, I found that much fresher on my ears and a lot more challenging, intellectually challenging in terms of figuring out how to patch voices like that and have them progress and have them actually still be musical as well as textural. And so that led me towards manufacturers like Sputnik and Verbos, um, who are, of course, basing all of their work very, very strongly or entirely on mm -hmm. the Buchla paradigm. And I wound up realizing that that workflow, not the timbres of the Eurorack modules, but that Buchla-esque workflow really worked with how I think. And I think it's it felt immediate. It felt just very responsive and um, really kind of represented a way for me to take my timbres to places that traditional, more subtractive East Coast style patching couldn't. Mm -hmm. And um, and I started to really go into that world and realized, you know, I've got the workflow. Um, it's all sounding really great, but none of this really, really, truly sounds like a Buchla. And so a friend of mine let me borrow his um, 12 space um, kind of DIY Buchla for a summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that sat in my living room for a while, and that really was was the the key. And so ever since that time, I've started to build my own Buchla system. And I think that you know the physical size really matters. Mm -hmm. um, you know the the more the, there's more physical space to work uh, in terms of engaging with it as an instrument. And, uh, you know, the tools we use shapes the output of our creativity. And so for me, it just feels much more like a tool that allows me to, frankly, I, I take bigger risks when I use the Buchla, aesthetically, timbrally, compositionally, than I do when I, uh, when I use Eurorack or traditional synths. You know, I have a studio filled with different um, formats, and I use them all for different things. But um, when it comes to the Buchla, for me, that's where I can just kind of disengage all of my filters and I think take much, much bigger risks. Yeah, that's interesting that it it conjures that out of you, you know, because I, I guess I don't have too much experience with with Eurorack stuff. Um, but the little bits that I have, definitely the size I felt like, oh, wow, like, yes, you have you can, yeah, it's more spacey. You can move around a bit more. But interesting that it also changes your mindset. Yeah, I I had a similar path, Nathan, coming from Sputnik um, in Eurorack. And it, it kind of ignited my own interest in Buchla. Um, and then the last episode of the show, we were talking to Tim Held. And uh, he was asking about bananas because, you know, we were looking at the red panel. And I felt like the, the sort of interface contract with the for you format, you know, with bananas and tiny jacks, really changed the way that I approached the even the way that the, um, the the interaction with the modules, and it changed my approach to sound too. So, um, working with all you know with all these different types of instruments from an interface point of view, did you feel that kind of connection with the Buchla instrument that was different from the way you patched your rack or the way you interacted with the keys on your saxophone. And I'm always interested in the way that um, people feel about the interface of the Buchla. 
Absolutely. Um, as an interface designer, one of the things that I think everyone talks about with using hardware synths, but often doesn't have the um, the vocabulary to describe, is this thing called embodied cognition, where through the use of your body during the thought process, it changes how you think. And Buchla has that in spades, as does your Iraq in a, in a slightly different uh, way. And the example I always like to use is the game of Scrabble. Mm -hmm. So I'm a word nerd. I play the physical board game all the time, and my scores are always very, very high. But when I play Scrabble on my phone, I suck. <laughs> the scores are really low. And it's because I can't pick up the tiles and off the rack and literally just rub them or twirl them in my fingers as I think. And that materially changes my thought process as I engage with it as a game and an intellectual exercise. So for me, I find that with your rack, um, I wound up using that a lot more for kind of quote unquote formal composition and sound design because for me, your rack just makes me, it's a more, uh, what's the best way to put it? It's a bit more of a logical cognitive engagement. Whereas with Buchla, and I will never like live patch things in Eurorack. For me, it's all about get this huge ecosystem of cables and patches going and then just let it run and I'm controlling knobs. Whereas um, with the Buchla format, even with the uh, Peter Blasser's Seat Lombard format, which is also banana based, I'm constantly live patching all the time. And I think it's that, that physical connection of the jacks it's the fact that you can patch and unpatch really quickly, stack and unstack really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, there is, as weird as it is, being a modular format, um, it is immediate in a way that I don't find some of the other formats to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it probably has to do with it all being designed from one mind, too, that they would, you know, that he's making one module to the to the next with his past work in mind where you can't quite do that with Eurorack unless you're just building up your own system and really take time. I think Verbos maybe has a bit of that in the way he's laid things out, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And I also think that as, as a whole, as a format, you can do a lot more in the Buchla format with fewer modules. Um, mm -hmm. of course each module takes up more space, but, um, I agree. I think that there is a there's a coherence and a consistency to the input and output paradigms, to the sonic paradigms, to um, how you how you patch, how you can patch. Um, and, you know, when I first started with Buchla, of course, one of the things a lot of people head scratch about is the separation of the CV path from the audio path, um, one being banana based and one being tiny jack based. And, you know, once you start to realize that almost any CV source in Buchla goes well into the audio rate, all of a sudden that becomes a complete non-issue. Mm -hmm. And your audio path can kind of stay stable and you don't have to re... You, at least I personally don't find myself repatching the audio path yeah. during a patch. But I am building and deconstructing a lot more um, with... Uh, with banana cables as I perform than I ever do with, um, with your rack. It's interesting you say that, Nathan, because I was playing around with um, CV processing. I've been just kind of diving into 
sort of the basics as I work on this new YouTube series. And um, I, I had 281E function generator going into my two control voltage processors, the 257E and the 254. Mm -hmm. And um, I left the audio alone. It was just a, a 261E you know, drone because it, it wasn't what I was doing. I was doing CV. And moving the patch, the uh, banana cables around and stacking them up and sending them to multiple routes and stuff, it just completely separated from the sound. You know, the the timbres changed based on the application of CV, but I knew that that base that base timbre wasn't going to change. You know, what was coming from the two sixty one, so it freed me up to really dive into the CV aspects, and it was sort of an aha moment for me even almost two years into my Buchla journey, that this is a big part of why CV is in banana, you know, and reaching over and grabbing a banana cable and I do it by color and, and all of that. And you can get a lot of the same feeling in NeuroRack. It's just, a, it's just a little bit different um, by that separation. It was very pleasing, actually. It was very calming to do that. I know that, that might sound silly to some. No, I, I, it is, it is very meditative. And I think part of it is also, if you look at any Buchla panel versus almost any Eurorack panel, there are fewer jacks. There's actually less to know per module, I would argue, but the multivariance of how those few input and outputs um, route to other inputs and outputs on other modules is obviously radically multivariant. Um, but I think that it's the simplicity per module that really is different. So tell us about, um, so you, you borrowed that system from your friend and then you started out, um, on a path to make your own system. So what did you, um, yeah, how'd you build it? what did you end up with? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So I wound up patterning the system that I built very much on the one that I borrowed uh, because I really fell in love with the workflow of the 208, the top half of the music easel. Mm -hmm. So I wound up building my first instrument, as I called it, uh, as a easel plus plus. So I had a 208R clone and I had a used 218E keyboard. But I'm a pragmatist when it comes to adding instruments to my studio. And so it was really important to me to figure out how is this going to integrate with um, with the rest of my equipment. So the the third thing I really added very early on was a Buchla blade, the BEMI um, Eurorack carrier. Yeah, and that's like just like a single space Buchla module, right? And you can how many HP does that carry? Twenty, if it was the single width. Okay. And then 40 yep, that's if right. a double. Gotcha. Yep. And so I in there I put a CVGT1 uh, from Synovatron that would translate all the Eurorack stuff into the Buchla stuff, like voltages and pulses and gates and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I also threw in a, a qubit octone eight-step sequencer. And then I was like, okay, well, I've got now two sequencers for one voice. Yeah. That's cool. Um, actually almost more like four channels of sequencing if you include the 218. So the next obvious choice was like, well, I need a couple more oscillators now. So um, then I threw in a, uh, a 158 clone, which I deeply love because those things are haunted. Um, <laughs> like the, 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 awesome. the, 
the slew you get when you're FMing it, and then all of a sudden you either jam the knob quickly up or down, or you pull the FM source, and the oscillator slews back down to the non-FM state. Oh, I just love that. (laughs) Um, And then from there, you know, I expanded with... uh, uh, with more stuff, added more gates, added more envelopes. Um, uh, and I have since now sold the 218 in favor of two touch-sensitive note memories, or TSNMs, mm-hmm. um, uh, that I had a friend build for me. And that's been really fun because it's like having two smaller 218 keyboards because now both keyboards can do portamento, they can sequence... They can arpeggiate um, and they can be clocked. And so um, I've kind of added a lot more functionality in half the space. And my current Buchla system is only um, 12 spaces. So uh, that was that was a really, really big key for me to be able to create full, lush, multi-voice patches in a relatively compact space. So I wanted to ask you about that TSNM because you posted this really great video on Facebook recently um, where you're, I think you're in G major. Um, that's just by memory and you're using the TSNM, which I believe outputs a quantized voltage for particular notes, you know, in a Western scale. And there was this discussion about Buchla making tonal music, you know, and working within a key, which made me wonder if, you know, you, you come from a, um, a creative background. So I'm, you have some understanding of music theory, but I would, and using the TSNM, kind of what's your point of view on um, making tonal music or conforming to equal temperament in the Western scale, you know, using a key? Kind of what's your point of view on that? Because a lot of your music doesn't really indicate that, but we, d- we don't really know for sure because I'm not, you know, listening to the, the specific pitch of an oscillator, but I'm curious about how you approach that. That's a great question. Um, I I have a hard time getting away from traditional melody, and I think that's probably just how I was trained as a as a musician, as a saxophonist, reading sheet music and improvising and all those other things. Um, yet I also can't not uh, love experimental timbres and tones just for the sake of sound. So um, I think what typifies a lot of my music is trying to balance the two. And so um, I, I love grinding gnarly tones. I love, um, you know, lilting little bleeps and bloops. But for me, um, there's got to be a uh, there's got to be a through path. There's got to be a journey that the listener is going to be taken on. And for me, just given how I like to make music, for me, that journey is largely charted through melody. So um, the, you're right, the TSNMs do output quantized voltages, um, which is great. And uh, in that patch you were discussing, I decided to actually set up the 208 sequencer to play a bass line that was four notes long. And then I um, wound up playing the TSNM to uh, play the primary oscillator on the 208. And that was fun because the bass progression, uh, which was triggered from the TSNM's gate output, only did four notes, but I had a full eight notes on the keyboard. And so there was a little bit of kind of non-deterministic kind of harmonies that would play as I performed. Mm -hmm. Um, I always like having 
systems that will create outcomes that are somewhat predictable, but are open to those happy accidents where, oh, I hit an E on the melody and now it's playing an F sharp, um, you know, immediately adjacent in the bass line. And that creates a tension that I might not have expected, but it still works because I'm working in the framework of a standard Western scale. Yeah. Um, so, you know, building those little moments where this is going to do one thing and it's actually maybe even fairly boring and traditional. This thing's doing another thing, maybe fairly boring and traditional, but building in the opportunity to have those kind of collisions and accidents happen, whether it's timbral or harmonic is something that I really, really enjoy. Yeah, that's, and I, I hear that in your music. Um, you know, you can, I think a lot of us who have a music theory background, if we're composing as we're patching, it, it influences us. You know, I, I might not tune my oscillators to a specific pitch, which would be formally microtonal, but I'll still work within a tonal center as I, once I've established that. And I, I hear that in your music, um, which of course is my interpretation that might not actually even be the case. But the, 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 the follow on to that is have, have you studied or paid it, you know, any kind of um, credence to the experimentalists or the avant-garde of the 20th century, like Schoenberg and, you know, the Getty and of course, um, Stockhausen and the minimalists, because I, I hear some of that influence in your music. Again, could be confirmation bias on my part, but I hear that <laughs> in there. So I was curious about your kind of your music taste in terms of the composition and then your output being similar to the industrial music that we both grew up with. Yeah. Um, those avant-garde composers you just mentioned, I'm, I'm certainly very aware of their work and, um, some of the kind of conceptual underpinnings of, of where they're coming from. Um, I think that as a listener, I find some of that challenge. I, I find all of it challenging to listen to as a consumer of music. Um, however, it also has a power that traditional music doesn't uh, like Penderecki's Threnody for Hiroshima. Like that is just going to chill you to the bone no matter what. And, um, you know, Ligeti's work, uh, the, the the choral works that were featured in the movie uh, 2001, which I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with. Yeah. Um, they are just these emotionally harrowing experiences. And it's the, it's the traditionally speaking, atonality of them that does it. But I, um, like you, sometimes I will focus more on on interval than pitch mm. and just having intervals lead a uh, lead a composition is really freeing because then you're it's almost like you're composing based on oscillator beatings between one you know between mm. two uh, voices that aren't aren't uh, uh, of the same pitch yeah and that can really lead to some really interesting places um, for me, I always tend to come back to traditional Western scales, even if I go off on, you know, experimental tangents, either as part of a performance or, or part of a piece. But um, I think that studying that stuff and letting yourself go there um, in terms of really casting off the shackles of traditional music theory is is really freeing because then you come back and when you work within traditional music theory, then you're starting to throw in accidentals and blue notes and things that are a little yeah. a little less um, restrictive and confined. 
And so, um, so I, I, for me, I find the two inform each other to a, to a great degree. They're like tritones and working in E flat minor. Mm-hmm. You know, Kyle's music is, um, I, I love, I mean, we'll talk about him like he's not sitting here, but <laughs> Kyle makes a lot of great music that is very much, um, from my point of view, inspired by connecting with an audience. You know, he has mm-hmm. great melodies, creates amazing timbres. It comes from a different point of view than I do when making my music. So it's, it, 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 while I talk about what I get from your music, I, I also wonder about what Kyle gets from it because he's, you know, coming from a completely different, you know, I have this strong academic background and Kyle's performed in front of thousands of people, you know, like this totally different point of view, which is really interesting too, because <laughs> that's what I love about electronic music in general is it's so much, um, I think there's such a strong bias toward taking really what we want from it as individuals rather than agreeing about what the music is about. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think I really lock in with, um, I mean, it's funny to, I guess, play on your last name, but the moods um, within your albums and uh, especially like the heliopause that you put out earlier this year, which was um, all Bukla, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and and it was um and also kind of the theme was uh kind of centered around space and it it was a very grungy theme. It felt more aliens than 2001 Space Odyssey mm-hmm. um in my mind. Should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, it felt like, you know, space trekkers like uh like the dudes and aliens. Um tell me how the creation of that album Kind of how did the theme come to you? So when I was a kid, I had an uncle who worked for Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and he would send me the press kits for um, for the Voyager 2 probe when it would go by a planet of significance. So I'd get these, you know, 8 by 10 glossy photos of actual photos of Jupiter, oh, and then cool. later actual photos of Saturn and Titan and that just was an an imagination implosion for me. And I would argue that those photos of real space is actually what got me into science fiction and genre film and horror and fantasy and all those other things. Mm-hmm. And that's always just had a lot of power for me. And then um, I was working on some just notional sketches, not sure on, on the Bukla, not sure where they were going to go. And then um, I saw a news article about how Voyager 2 had just crossed the heliopause. The heliopause is what people generally consider the the boundary of our solar system. And it's where the influence of the solar winds kind of give way to larger patterns of just interstellar gas. And that immediately made me start thinking about those old 8x10 glossy photos of alien worlds and Mm -hmm. that instantly just got me kind of fired up. And so as I started to work, uh, as you said, Kyle, it's not a clean, pristine quote unquote, you know, space music album. (laughs) And it's because I think I'm, I'm too much of a, of a, of a pragmatist to think that our notions of what space is and the influence it will have on our culture and our, point of view on our, on our place in the universe, I think it's going to be a whole lot less rosy than 
we thought in the 60s and 50s, 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And I think we're still going to be seeing corporations fighting for dominance in space. We're going to see nations continuing to have conflicts in space. You can't take the humanity out of humanity um, for all of its amazingness and all of its badness. And so for me, it was an opportunity to explore the ideas of interstellar travel, other worlds, but through a lens of, um, of I don't want to say realism, but pragmatism about understanding what the human condition in those environments would, would be. So that was kind of how the conceptual framework of that album uh, came about and what influenced um, how the songs turned out. Gotcha. And then it's very, very nihilistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all bad. I mean, if it was nihilistic, uh, it would be a Surachai album. No, uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, I love and respect to Surachai. I love, love, love his music. Um, I think that uh, I don't see it as a nihilistic album just because I think it's being realistic. There are moments of beauty on it, just like mm -hmm. there are moments of beauty in human interactions every day, all day long. But there are all there's also an ugliness to how humans interact with one another. And I think that how I approach music is I don't I don't approach music as meditation. I don't approach music as escape. I approach music and the creation of music as an emotion sink. It's a place for me to put all of the things that make it hard to be an optimist every day. And that allows me to then go around with a smile on my face and make jokes and <laughs> have a good day and have good interactions with people. And so I think that's a big part of where I need to go as a person and as a creator in my music um, so that I can actually just at the end of the day, be a better human being outside of music. Um, so I guess then transitioning over to the actual sounds of that album, um, you know, that's just like, you know, like you're saying before, it's, it's, it's grimy. I guess that concept kind of comes out from the sounds, but I want to know how you achieved those and you, you know, recording the whole thing yourself, um, mixing it. Did you have this one mass? Did you master this one or did you have somebody else do that for you? Uh, on this one, I actually did master it myself mm -hmm. purely for budgetary reasons. Yeah. Um, I, I had just released a, uh, a more Eurorack centric, uh, I think entirely Eurorack centric album previously called Litho, um, Litho Poetics. Mm -hmm. And that one I did have uh, my own mastering engineer separately um, take care of the mastering for that. Um, but, and one of the things that I always do is if I do wind up having to master my own work because of budget, um, I have to let it percolate and sit. And I literally have to forget what mm -hmm. I did on the album mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise just the whole value of mastering is an objective point of view. And if I roll into mastering my own work after having mixed it, it's there's, there's kind of no point. So I often will shelve a project for months before I come back and feel ready to actually um, address the mastering. But um, I think a, the, the timbres on that album, I absolutely tie directly back to the fact that I'm using a 208 clone. Um, in my experience, comparing the 208R to BEMI or Buchle USA modern 208s um, is that it's it's throatier mm -hmm. and it has just obscene amounts of bass frequencies so much that it actually is is a little challenging to, to, to mix sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think that it, it has this kind of more guttural, throaty, dare I say, almost more primitive sound than the 208 um, module itself. I think that the the modern 208s can go timbrally to much more angular places than mine can. Mm. Um, and uh, much more aggressive wave folding than, than the build that I'm using. So, you know, rather than be concerned that this 208 doesn't sound like that 208 just like in the back in the day you know oh my 808 sounds different than your 808 <laughs> yeah um you know you you lean into it mm -hmm. and you embrace what it's good for um and so that's i think really the the origin of the the sonic footprint for the heliopause album really is that that completely analog um very rumbly throaty 208 r clone I was just kind of hoping to get maybe your expertise since you've you know made a couple albums using the easel and well I know you've seen or you've worked with um, other people that have uh, used Buchla instruments for their recordings that you've mastered uh, me being one of them and just kind of wondering if you have any kind of tips or even kind of like signal chain paths and stuff or just kind of with recording and, and mixing Buchla. So in terms of tips with recording the Buchla, it's, it's so dependent on what flavor of Buchla one is using, whether it's a music mm -hmm. easel, whether it's 200E, 200, 200 clone. Um, one thing that I do being a 200 series clone user is my last output stage out of the synth is a 207, and that has unbalanced line outs. So what I do is I take my outputs and always run them into a DI box and then run that either straight into my interface as balanced uh, inputs or into a mic preamp or two, uh, depending on the flavor and timbre and tone that mm -hmm. I want, um, including as to whether or not I want to apply EQ on the way into the interface, which I don't always do, but sometimes um, sometimes that's nice to do. So I find that having a balanced, um, having balanced outputs out of the Buchla lets you have plenty long cable runs if that's a requirement in your studio, or um, if you are having any sort of electrical faults in your studio, it might kick the hum down a little bit. Another thing that is interesting about the Buchla is its tonal range. So if I'm using my 208 and especially if i'm engaging the spring reverb there's a lot of bass mud that builds up so mm -hmm. i often will high pass filter um, those tracks even if it's a bass track um, just because sometimes there are infrasonics between say 10 hertz and 20 hertz that are eating up headroom that just people can't hear and it's not moving the music and moving the emotion forward another mm -hmm. thing is Unlike Moog and um, Eurorack, not as many people in Buchla tend to have highly, highly resonant filters. Of course, you can. There are modules that do that. But say with the Music Easel, you're not going to get screaming, squelching resonance by having a filter cue set really narrow or the resonance being set really high because there is no such control. Mm -hmm. um, however, sometimes you can still get... Um, extreme dynamics when you start 
uh, plucking low-pass gates and stuff like that. So uh, multiband compressors, I find, are something that I reach for quite a bit when I'm dealing with Buchla recordings. And actually, extremely high frequencies are very common on Buchla systems. So I will often low-pass audio as changes the sounds. I will low-pass it at 20 kilohertz uh, just to make sure that there's no ultrasonic material that, again, most listeners can't hear or any listener can't hear. <laughs> and if that stuff is retained all the way into mastering, that can actually create all sorts of weird artifacts when converted to MP3 for streaming or AAC. Oh, okay. So those are some some typical things that I've had to deal with uh, in my own recordings of um, on the Buchla, but also clients who are submitting stuff that are either Buchla modular or uh, music easel based. Gotcha. And you kind of mentioned, you know, sometimes going into a mic pre um, or a specific mic pre um, before recording. I'm, I've always kind of wondered about that as like how much, uh, it's, I mean, do you often do that? Do you often record um, kind of juicing the sound on the way into the recording instead of just getting like a very clean direct into the interface recording? from direct out of the of the instrument i i do i i like to do that because whether it's recording with delay or with reverb or with some saturation um that changes how i play mm -hmm. and so um i always find that i i want to hear that stuff um, as it goes in so a i'm so i commit which yeah. to me is really important but also it, it'll change how I play and how I lean into certain um, articulations and whether that's pressure or just modifying CV as I play. And, you know, a lot of mic pre's are built properly in order to not add a whole bunch of color to, mm -hmm. to sound. Um, you know, one likes to more rely on which microphone you choose, but mic pre's can add a lot of color. And when we say color, to be honest, what we're really talking about is distortion. It's mm -hmm. harmonic enhancement. And so sometimes if you're doing something that's just pure sine waves, um, roughing it up a little bit and adding some harmonics onto those sine waves with a mic pre instead of a wave folder um, or, or AM is yeah. just kind of an interesting, different way to approach it. But it's 50-50, you know, some, whether or not I feel like this patch or this voice or this uh, composition needs some of that goosing or if I just say you know what it's good for now and I'll just add an instance of decapitator on it in the DAW later it, it just depends on, on on the piece gotcha and when when you are receiving tracks from people kind of what do you see like <laughs> what are some things that you're constantly telling people like after you get those um, of what you would have rather have seen or like what helps you as a mastering engineer um, for the tracks that you receive? Um, most of it's not technical, uh, actually. The, the biggest thing that I really want people to tell me is don't be coy with intent. Tell mm. me what the themes are. Don't treat me like a listener. Treat me like a band member. Like, tell me what the song is about in plain terms. Tell me what the album is exploring in very basic terms, in terms of theme and subtext. Uh, tell me where you want the you feel the peaks and valleys of emotion should be. And those things are way, way more useful um, to me in terms of uh, 
having the the artist help themselves in terms of really making the mastering process successful. Um, I think in terms of the technical things, there's very little I can't address in the mastering process as long as the mix is solid, as long mm -hmm. as the voices are balanced against one another. However, one thing that's always tricky, and I've talked about this publicly a number of times, is phase correlation, which basically means that when you've got stereo and um, there are frequencies in the stereo field that are out of phase with each other left to right, uh, they can phase cancel each other out when you reproduce them in mono. And they can also sometimes lead to some strange psychoacoustic effects when you listen to it in headphones, where it feels like you've got nulls at your ears and all the sound is coming from outside of your headphones, plus in the middle of your sinuses. And some people uh, actually get a little bit nauseous dealing with that. So um, phase correlation is something that's easy to monitor because you can get a phase correlation meter in your DAW. Um, and a lot of it is just filtering out the high, uh, sorry, a lot of the fixes have to do with filtering out the low frequencies in the side channel only involving mid-side EQ as opposed to left-right EQ. So those are that's mm -hmm. maybe the most common technical thing that I encourage artists to fix because it will change the stereo balance. And I'd love to have the artist do that instead of me in terms of just creative choice. Yeah. So then, so I guess, okay, so filtering on... So it doesn't mean to like kind of narrow the um the spread of your um of your left and right panning. It's actually putting filters within those frequencies. Yeah, it's actually constraining the width in a frequency range. So um mm. the other problem with phase correlation is if you're ever going to press to vinyl, um anything with really poor stereo correlation just cannot be pressed to vinyl. The the lacquers won't cut. Um mm. and even if they cut on playback, the the playback head might even skip out of the groove. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's why it's really, really important to address phase correlation in mastering. Um, and, you know, you can still do bass that's very wide left and right, but you have to treat it in a really, really careful manner to make sure that they're perfectly in phase just in those bass frequencies. What's usually easier is to kind of make the, the bass frequencies narrower but to leave everything outside of the base range as wide as is appropriate for the level of immer level or type of immersion that the artist is going for. And I guess coming from, uh, I guess, just wondering how I do this specifically, since I'm usually kind of coming, you know, straight from the easel or my system, maybe into like a, a reverb and it's, everything is kind of getting recorded at once. So I don't have like a separate bass track mm. and everything, you know, it's just too, just a, you know, stereo tracks. Um, what would be, I guess, yeah, what would be the process of of uh, fixing that? That gets tricky. I, I think one of the one of the wonderful things about modular in general and Buchla fits very well in this paradigm is that I think a lot of us are really blending performance, writing, composing, and mixing all kind of in very, very tight iterations in the same mm -hmm. process. Yeah, And so a lot of it just comes from rehearsal and practice. And what I often encourage people to do is if that is a workflow that really works for you creatively, when you record, record into a DAW, treat your digital audio workstation like a fancy tape deck, 
but do so through a frequency analyzer. So that way you can actually have visual correlation to what you're hearing. And you might even be seeing things in the frequency analyzer you're not hearing. And of course, we all need to lead with our ears in terms of emotion and audio engineering. But if you're just starting to get into audio engineering for your own purposes to make your recordings sound better, I think frequency analyzers are a radically under relied upon learning tool. And mm -hmm. so that way you can do a performance, listen or a rehearsal listen back to it and say, huh, this sounds muddy. Why does it sound muddy? And then you literally have a visual reason why it sounds muddy. Um, and so using a uh, frequency analyzer while rehearsing, even as you're just monitoring the input, even before you hit the record button, I mm -hmm. think is a really good way for people to start self-diagnosing some of these challenges. Yeah, it's a good idea. I'm gonna have to start doing that. So Nathan, there's a really basic question that seems to come up a lot. I'd like to get your take. Recording out of the Buchla, let's say 207, 206, e, you know, 227, what levels should, the output levels, what should they be set to? Going mm -hmm. up into the yellow and not quite clipping into the red? It, it's really basic, but it seems like people record too quiet and then max it out with normalization of gain in the DAW, which adds distortion. What's that sweet spot? The answer today, now that we're in a 24-bit recording world, is very different than it used to be. It used to be that in the world of tape, in the world of 16-bit recording, uh, recording as hot as possible without clipping or saturating, in whether it's analog or digital, was really important in order to maximize what bandwidth we had available in the recording medium and to overcome you know, noise floor and signal-to-noise ratios. In the 24-bit world, there is no reason, in my opinion, that your peaks need to be much higher than minus 12 to minus 6 decibels full scale, which means below digital zero on your master meter. And the reason for that is that with 24 bits of depth per sample, um, we have a fidelity that just has never been available to us before. And so now the only reason to record any hotter than that is if you're trying to overcome an electrical fault in your system, ground loop, um, you know, a buzzy module, um, a dodgy power supply. Those are the only reasons to record a little bit hotter just so you're overcoming any noise floor. Mm. That said, there are many tools from Isotope RX to Adobe Audition that can allow you to noise print your noise floor and then remove it alg algorithmically. So even that's another way to allow you yourself to, you know, hit record, don't play anything and just record a, a few seconds of background noise or noise floor. And then you can potentially, uh, I, I don't want to say remove, you can suppress some of that noise and if you push your noise floor even down by 4 db 6 db that can actually make a, a pretty big difference you don't need to be reducing the noise floor by 20 db because that's sure to introduce artifacts into the audio um the main audio material so i like to get full mixes that don't peak much above minus six decibels full scale that's kind of my my personal sweet spot 
we just had Velocity here in Seattle a few weeks ago, uh, to which you came up and, and spoke and then performed. Um, and on your way up, you got to spend some time with a friend of the pod, Todd Barton. And yeah, what was that time like? I think I probably learned more in the, the four to six hours we spent on in terms of music and active listening than I have in years. Um, Todd, besides just being a total sweetheart of a human being and being blindingly talented in terms of composition and performance and electronic music in general, um, we actually took some time to jam together in, at his place. That's and awesome. in my musical career, I haven't had the opportunity to improvise with or jam with a lot of other people who are formally trained and have years or decades of experience. And so being able to be in the presence of someone who in the context of a collaborative improvisation spent most of his time listening and doing nothing was <laughs> one of the most life-changing ex experiences I've had as a musician. And one of Todd's classic mantras is follow the sound. Mm -hmm. And he really is a amazing proponent of just active listening and responding to what you hear. And if you put him a rational hat on that, it's almost like he's basically making music through constant real-time gap analysis, listening for mm -hmm. where are the opportunities for timbre, for rhythm, either whether it's faster or slower. Um, he's always listening for what's happening and trying to find meaningful places to fill in gaps. And um, I think that I've, I think that's going to change not only my collaborative process forever, but I think it's also going to change how I interact with my own patches um, mm -hmm. as I perform and improvise and even rehearse on my own. So that was, that was really uh, a formative experience. That's great. And it's, I don't know, it's still so mind blowing that, you know, this is all done. I'm guessing you jammed on the easel with, with you. Well, that's where it gets funny. Um, the There were three of us, actually, and it was Bruce Bayard uh, who had yeah. an easel. And, um, <laughs> and Todd's instrument of choice for the evening was a uh, Hordike Blipu box, which oh, is, nice. you yeah. know, for those who, uh, listeners who might not know what it is, it is basically a drone, ostensibly a drone box with two incredibly complex uh, oscillators that interact with one another in very strange ways and two resonant filters and they all can cross modulate and it's just chaos in a box. Mm -hmm. And all he was doing was using that, a volume knob to control it and a looper. And oh, that yeah. was his entire setup. So there's, he's got that. And then Bruce has his music easel. And I did a Seattle Lombard based set in, in uh, Seattle. So I had, a Tetrax organ, a Sidrax organ, a Coco Kiwanis, and some pedals. So it was a little embarrassing how much stuff I had on my desk <laughs> compared to everybody else. Um, but, you know, there were there was no shared clock. There was no discussion of what key we were going to be in. And there was not even a notion of who would start each each jam session. Uh, we, mm -hmm. did, we did two or three. And it all just happened in this very organic way that was, again, just pretty pretty mind-blowing and for me just very educational I, i'm not lucky enough to have had a lot of those experiences before 
Todd is amazing. You know, we, we had him on the show. At, um, I think it was our first episode. And I, I haven't had the pleasure of performing with him, although I did get to meet him at Velocity, which was, was fantastic. But he, he had an effect on my approach to making music too, Nathan, in that he's kind of a philosopher at heart. You know, very deep technical knowledge of both music and various instruments, and like, you know, in this case, the Buchla. And the way he explains the different aspects of the, like the Buchla 200E, it was less about, you know, the peak voltage end to end and, you know, how much um, voltage range for a pitch between two notes in a mode. You know, he knows that stuff, but he expresses it in a way that's really more of the uh, kind of the, the fluent, um, the fluent expression of patching. And I think that that probably comes out a lot, you know, performing with him live because I've seen him live. Uh, he performed at Good Shepherd here in Seattle a year or so, a couple years back. And you could kind of see it as he was doing his follow the sound performance in quad that he just, you know, knew where everything went to patch to get the sound he wanted, but was really going on feeling and sort of this emotional mm-hmm. connection to, to his instrument. And I think that's, um, that's just so apparent, you know, even when you just talk to him. I completely agree. And this goes back to something you said um, earlier in, in this show, Robert, which is that balance of pure sound and experimentalism versus um, kind of more standard Western music theory. And I think Todd is one of those rare individuals who has gone all the way through one and has come out the, <laughs> come out the other side um, where, you know, of course you could tell him to compose something in a certain key and he'd do it. It would be tight. It'd be beautiful, but he's going to come out on the other side where I think his joy now comes really from creating timbral and tonal journeys in a way that is not following traditional Western music theory, even though he has all of that in his back pocket at all times. Yeah. And he was also very fortunate to come of age, you know, the seventies and the eighties and kind of, experiencing all that stuff as it was new and happening. He was there for that stuff and experienced it firsthand and then combines that with his own talent and knowledge. So, I mean, I I don't mean to embarrass you, Todd, when you listen to this, but (laughs) (laughs) you have a lot of influence on us in the Buchla scene. Nathan, if people want to find your music, uh, get their uh, music mastered by you, or just, yeah, figure out kind of maybe where you'd be playing next, where should they get a hold of you? All of my music is available on nathanmoody.bandcamp.com. I also have a website at music.noisejockey.net, which is my general news site. And it also posts detailed um, production notes on all of the albums that I release in terms of how they came about and how they were made. And then in terms of mastering, my mastering practice is called Obsidian Sound. And that can be found at obsidiansound.net. And yeah, you should all check that out. I had my first album, uh, Year One, mastered by Nathan. And uh, yeah, it sounds so much better than it did. (laughs) So yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show, Nathan. And I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys. It was a real pleasure. So much fun. Thank you.
We'd like to thank Nathan Moody again for joining us on the podcast today. It was a lot of fun. You can check out Nathan's music at nathanmoody.bandcamp.com and you can contact him for mastering services at obsidiansound.net. As always, check out our podcasting friends Ed Ball and Ben Divkid-Wilson and their show Esoteric Modulation and Tim Held's Podular Modcast. Don't forget to visit waveformmagazine.com to get a free print magazine delivered in the mail. Issue 2 just came out. That's great. If you want to help support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash source of uncertainty and check out Robert's beautiful new website that he worked so hard on at sourceofuncertainty.audio. Find us on Instagram at, at source of uncertainty. And that's it. We'll see you next month. Can't wait.